Alright, hey everybody, welcome to the process. Um, I have moved the studio back into my living room because I got a little corner desk and it's sweet. So, maybe you'll hear people walking their dogs. I don't know. I don't care. I'm a one-man show here. <laughs> this makes my life way more convenient. So, please excuse the mess. We may be under construction or we may not. So, um... Why the heck do I make this podcast? So, in the climbing world, we're having real important discussions about risk, risk-taking, things like that. And I felt it was important to cover the processes behind these things so that we can help more people come home alive. I've had people tell me that they were free soloing in a very bad way, and that listening to this podcast has actually helped them reel it in to solo with some semblance of sanity. Meanwhile, I've had others tell me that they listened to this podcast and realized they weren't ready for free soloing at all. So, that's one way it's been helping. And another one, I've actually had some others tell me that they... Uh, from this podcast, they got the impetus they needed to seek out treatment for their mental health. So that's what this episode is about, mental health, specifically mine. And we're going to go back to some of the darkest chapters of my life, and frankly the scariest thing I've ever dealt with, which is my own mind fighting against me. So... Hope y'all are ready for that, and if you're not, this would be a good time to tune out. So, um, other things going on. I've got a media landing page at www.freesoloist.rocks. So if you want to send people my stuff, you can send them right there, and it's got links to my Instagram, my YouTube, the Facebook, to my blog... And uh, to this podcast as well, there's a little button they can click on there and it will take them to the page where they can subscribe on the podcasting app of their choice. Also, I felt kind of weird about it, but I started up a Patreon account. Not necessarily for me, but for all of you guys out there. So the notion behind this Patreon thing is that uh, you guys want cool content. I'm a one-man show. It's just me, and I've got a day job. So, if we uh, if we get some money in through the Patreon account, it'll help me hire some of our lovable dirtbag friends who are living in their cars, trying to work that hustle and get everything together. So, some of this Patreon money, if we get it, will help those people live their dream because we can hire them to shoot photos and video and maybe I'll be able to outsource the audio portion of this podcast. So you guys get higher quality content and we get to take the mojo and pay it forward to our community members. Uh, second thing, if it really gets going, maybe it'll help me offset the cost of all this equipment that I've bought. You know, I'm a I'm an unsponsored indie climber. This is just a bunch of stuff that I bought because it was fun to play with, and it had a price tag. And finally, if the Patreon thing goes really nuts, 
Maybe it'll help fund more exciting climbing trips with more wild objectives instead of just the same overhanging jug hauls from the red. So, a lot of cool things that could come out of that, none of which have anything to do with giving me a new house and a, you know, a yacht in the Florida Keys. So that is at patreon.com slash freesoloist. And it's also at the top of my media page. So if you go to that freesoloist.rocks, it's not a .com, it's a .rocks. That's a thing now. Freesoloist.rocks has the Patreon account uh, right at the top. Or you could just go to patreon.com slash freesoloist. Meanwhile, we're still working on that film thing. Bones, in his infinite excitement, finally has a rough draft together, despite the fact that he now has a job. And I'm going to review it tomorrow, actually. We have an appointment to review that tomorrow, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'll be able to give him some feedback, and this thing should be coming along soon, I hope. Um, yeah, so thefreesoloist.com is the landing page for the film, and if you just want more info about me, uh, and... Speaking of info, if you have any questions, comments, or hate mail, send them to austin at thefreesoloist.com. I would love to answer any questions you have there, and if you give me something really thought-provoking, it might become a future podcast episode. So, um... Enough spraying about things and stuff. Let's get heavy. Oh boy, here we go. Can't believe I'm doing this. Right. Ready, set, go. Surveying the city skyline, I had to admit, the view was pretty good even though it's not the type of high-angle situation that I'm accustomed to. I did have to give it that. You could see all three hallmarks of Houston from these parapets, and I took a minute to survey them all. The downtown, the medical district, and even the stacks of the refineries were visible, lit up by the midnight hour in their productive glow. I was a long way up. Looking down from the walkway at the concrete, I knew this place would do the trick. But then, I'd thought that out long before I ever got in the car and drove out here. Ten floors plus a little bit extra to land in the concrete pit just below the base of the building. I had come here to die. The calculation was brutal. Midnight, so there would be fewer witnesses troubled. I didn't want to make a scene. This place was rather public, but this was the only spot I could be certain. Ten stories, because I'd already survived a fall from three stories up. 
in a thoroughly undesired climbing accident. Tripling that length with a hard landing zone would make the end quick, relatively painless. Once I tipped over the edge, there was no chance of survival. None. I didn't want to limp away from this thing. I knew what it felt like to be fucked up in a hospital bed. I stayed up there for perhaps an hour, trying to feel it out. Sometimes I sat right on the ledge itself, looking down. Sometimes I stared at those familiar horizons gleaming in the dark. I'm still not 100% sure what tipped the balance in my mind back towards the elevator. Some part of me deep down was fighting to stay alive, even though the parasitic thought patterns in my head were pushing hard to storm the castle and achieve their insidious victory over life. I don't fully know why I walked away from the precipice while so many others have committed. I guess you do just have to keep on rowing, even when you don't know the outcome. That track, Rowing, by Soundgarden, got me through a lot of tough times. Well, I know it doesn't sound like an attempt because I didn't try anything, but hmm, there wouldn't have been an attempt. So I consider that to be my only serious attempt at suicide. The only time I came close to really letting the darkness win and actually ending it. I do remember a long, long history in my life of wanting to die and pushing through anyway. In one of my youngest memories, I sat on the couch in my family house and tried to choke myself to death with my bare hands while no one was around. 
don't know how old I was. But I was too young to realize that I would eventually lose my grip. And that this couldn't actually work. I recounted that story in a counselor's office not too long after my rooftop ordeal. And he asked why I felt so strongly that I wanted to die. I thought about that a great deal. Why did I want to die? The events in my life were not particularly rough compared to others. And I didn't have a horrible past. The obstacles before me were possible to overcome. And I knew all this. I didn't feel like I had any good reason whatsoever. I didn't feel like I even had a bad reason. And while other people had it worse, that didn't make me better. The greatest moment of terror in my life was realizing that there was no reason for my tendencies towards suicide. Because if there was no reason, how could I possibly fix it? I may be a pessimist, but at that point, I estimated my odds of surviving another year at maybe 50%. I've been around these United States of ours in a wild way the past year, and I've seen that we humans are all frighteningly similar. No matter where I go, I find amazing people, people who've survived great hardships of mind, body, or circumstance, and frankly, they all kick ass. Learning to overcome these sufferings makes you a powerful survivor, even if you're not out of the woods yet, you're still surviving. I'm going to say it right now that I love you all, more than you'll ever know. The more people I meet, the more convinced I am that these internal struggles are just a part of the human condition. And the most interesting and beautiful humans I've ever met seem to have had the most vicious fights for survival. I think that's part of what made them so strong. Those with demons inside have to be or become strong. The alternative is to perish. And even some of the strong ones still perish. These people are beautiful in their awareness of others in the world, but perhaps being aware comes with a cost. Not only are you attuned to the good in the world, but also the frightening bits within you. And biology has us hardwired so that fear makes a very, very loud noise indeed. I think at some point, most folks have wished that they didn't have to deal with life. Wished they would never born or wished that something would end it for them. That there's all steps along this continuum, and it's a small slide on the scale to go from I wish I could kill myself to I'm going to kill myself. And then, it's only one small step for mankind to actually do it. For me, the desire to die was nothing new. It was old hat and had been around my consciousness for as long as I could remember. I don't know a single moment in my life where the ghost of suicidal ideation was entirely gone. I'd come to think of it as part of me. It didn't scare me anymore. 
what did scare me was the day that I stopped climbing. counselors in total over the years. It's not that any of them were inadequate, but imagine learning a complex subject from one single teacher. They have a great depth of knowledge, but perhaps they don't know how to phrase it in just the right way to make it click for your learning style. Seeing multiple therapists helped me find the one that clicked. Today, I don't even remember his name, but he gave me the single most crucial insight of the whole journey. I am not depression. I am not depressed. The depression is of me, but it is not me. It's more like a cancer. Most of you are familiar with the idea of a computer virus. Depression is like a mind virus, a series of repeating processes that disturb the normal operation of an otherwise healthy system. The mechanism of depression is to shrink your world. Depression shrinks your world by eliminating the things that make you happy. Depression wants to eliminate your friends. Depression wants to eliminate your daily functioning. Ultimately, after everything around you in your world is gone, depression wants to eliminate you. Depression is fundamentally the mechanism of suicide. Luckily for me, my counselor caught on that I was a somewhat self-aware individual and accustomed to following my thoughts. I suppose it's hard to be frightened of your mind if you never notice it. Perhaps if I weren't self-aware... I wouldn't have entered this state to begin with. And perhaps you, and those you know, wouldn't have either. But then, I wouldn't have written this article either. The key is to simply notice passing thoughts, and to notice when these thoughts were coming from my desires, or when they were coming from this mind virus, which is depression, did I really want to sit around the house all night? Or was that depression, trying to eliminate more of my world? Hmm. Actually, tonight as I'm recording this, I got into the studio and I just felt like shit. I didn't want to do anything. But I, you know, quote, had to schedule the next episode to go out tomorrow which will be like three weeks ago by the time this comes out, you know, podcast time magic. Um, I just didn't want to do anything, but I felt like I had a duty to put that post up, which I had already recorded. So I went through the motions and got everything ready and auto-scheduled, and, well, it felt good to knock something off my list, and that kind of perked me up, and I still didn't want to do anything. So... I just 
started doing it anyway. I'm recording right now. Even though I didn't want to when I got started, I'm kind of in the groove of it. I like this. This is what I do. And so, fuck you depression. I'm going climbing. So I went back to climbing, and I began training hard. I threw myself back into climbing like my life depended on it, because it did. I knew 100% that I was doing it for me and not for the depression. It was something that I could control, and I knew that it came from something intrinsic within me. And all through this time, I maintained my penchant for run-out climbing, and for soloing as well. The depression wants to eliminate the things that make me happy. I wasn't about to let it take that away from me. When you're 30 feet above your last bolt and a foot slips, in that moment of surging adrenaline, you truly come to know how strong your will to survive is. For me, climbing is the one time where my mind shuts down. There is no me, no depression, no elation. Just the next move, the hold I'm on, the feet that I'm using for balance, and the core tension keeping it all together. Soloing has taught me to look inward and observe my thoughts to see when a climb feels right and when I should back off. For me, soloing furthers that sense of still calmness in a way that nothing else can. And I can tell you that I've never once considered letting go on a route. (laughs) I would be far too pissed off if my epitaph said, We told you so. To ever consider that. Soloing saved my life. It gave me the power to fight back against my depression and take back what's rightfully mine. And it gave me the mental tools to look inward and inspect my own mind. And that's nothing unique to me or to soloing. I'm not particularly special, and I'm not advocating soloing as a way to overcome depression. But everybody who's dealt with this has that one thing they gave up to the depressive state that shrunk their world. I know friends who were similarly saved by triathlons, painting, cycling, writing, climbing, swimming, playing guitar, and a myriad of other pursuits. Many of them had far worse trouble to overcome than I did. Well, even Tommy Caldwell contemplated suicide. Once upon a time, before Honold actually did it, free soloing El Cap, was used as a euphemism for suicide in certain circles because it would mean certain death to attempt. Hanging out on the summit in a thunderstorm? You might as well free solo El Cap. In the aftermath of divorce, Tommy considered attempting the feat. Granted, he's one of the few humans physically capable of it, but even for him, it could easily have resulted in a swan dive. He's no soloist. He figured either he'd succeed and become the first human to free Solo El Cap, or the emotional pain would end. He sat above the rostrum, 
a site famous for Peter Croft's solos, contemplating the idea. And that's when the Dawn Wall was born. Instead of choosing to be consumed with something that would destroy him, he chose the project that would save him. The Dawn Wall saved Tommy's life. That's resilience. Steph Davis, a high-level soloist and bass jumper, went through similar bouts with depression and suicide after the death of her husband in a bass jumping accident in Italy. She considered jumping off without the parachute herself. But in the end, she too saw herself as separate from the darkness, and base jumping wound up being the thing that brought her back to life. As she says, she made a deliberate choice for resilience. Robin Williams fought with it too. It's not always obvious who's suffering. I remember a scene in A Beautiful Mind where John Nash was accosted by a hallucination, a, a symptom of his schizophrenia. He turned to the imagined person and says, I'm sorry, but I can't talk to you anymore. The delusion wasn't gone, but he was much more able to function simply by choosing not to interact with it. And so it is with me and my depression, that mental cancer is still there, I haven't exorcised the demon, and judging from my childhood memories, it may always be within me. But now I can recognize those thoughts. I can see when the depression is attempting to influence my behavior and I try not to talk to it anymore. I just recognize it as a dark old friend that I can no longer talk to. Some of the more interesting battles I have now are currently with anxiety. Coming that close to death leaves an imprint upon you, and now that imprint is mixed with any feelings of sadness that come across my mind so that they tra trigger a wave of fear. Sadness. Holy shit, that's the depression coming back. But now, I'm learning to recognize that as just another trigger, just as I would recognize a wave of fear mid-solo as something irrelevant to finishing the route. I'm beginning to recognize these irrational waves of anxiety as separate from me. I box them up and file them in that same corner with my old friend. Hello, darkness. And we don't dance in circles as much as we used to. Soon, maybe I won't talk to them either. Sadness, I know, is part of the human condition. It comes and it goes, but sometimes it takes longer to depart and we wonder just how long this winter has to last. But spring will come, as it always does. I lost my love, lost my life. Something I could give I would have given it before now
right, everybody, just jumping in here to let you know that this track we're hearing right now is Spring to Come from the John Butler Trio. This song, and in fact, John Butler's work, uh, have both been a, an important part of my life for a long time now, so if you like what you're hearing and the good messages within, this guy is a lot of good mojo in one single place. Do please go give them a check out. Back to the show. If there's one thing I've learned, it's that nothing lasts forever. Eventually, spring will come. Depression, suicidal thinking, eating disorders, anxiety, substance addiction. Almost everyone I know has had something to deal with because we're all human. The more I travel around the country and the more amazing people I've met, the more convinced I am that this is a universal battle that we all face to some degree or another. We all lie somewhere on the continuum. Reach out to those around you. Be vulnerable. You'd be amazed how many can understand what you're going through. I sure have been. Seems I meet people every other week. For those of us who battle our own minds, you are beautiful. How amazing is it that you've been able to survive something this long that has taken so many wonderful people from us? You are amazing. You have a beautiful mind. You are not defined by your demons any more than I am. And you are not alone. We are not alone. We are many, and we will be okay. Eventually. We just gotta hold on and wait for it. Spring will come, because the only thing constant in this world is change. Tune into that change, ride the wave, because this is life and death. This is war. Don't let that mind virus win, give it hell. But if you can't do it alone, that's okay too. In fact, it's normal. In his book, Deep Survival, Lawrence Gonzalez noticed a tendency among those who survive life-and-death wilderness situations that they are able to see the world around them as it changes. They're not caught up in preconceived notions of how things <clears throat> should be. They simply see them as they are and move forward with a plan that fits the new reality. There is no particular way that humans should be. We are so beautifully diverse that practically anything could be considered normal. 
And as the primary tenet of Buddhism says, suffering is. It just is. It's there. It's a fact. Don't be afraid of sadness or a certain amount of despair, for those are normal human conditions, and we have them from time to time. Gonzalez estimates that the percentage of the population that have this natural-born ability to ignore what they think should be and actually survive is only about 20%. But there are countless anecdotes of group survival, and all it takes is one member of the group standing up and taking the initiative to inspire others and buoy them up as well. That's 80% of people who then need a little help to see that they can make it out of the woods, but the point is that they do make it out. So for the sake of that 80% still stuck in the woods, if you're surviving, don't hide it. If you can, let people know and light the way for others. Hell, you might even help me someday. Saying these things publicly is a bit scary for me. And this is uh, the first time I've done so in this post here. It's amazing what people are capable of if they only know that it's possible. And so I feel I have a duty to display my struggles as an example. If it helps even one person, that's well worth making my story public. For that reason, you have my permission, I, you've got my encouragement to share this article anywhere that you can. For those of us still in the woods, they need to know they're not alone. The mind is a powerful thing. It can help you or it can hurt you. The mind can be controlled or controlling. And like any complex system, it can be hijacked and derailed. I'll have a few links in the show notes. Things I've considered part of my survival's toolkit. So make sure to click on through and pick those up. think that was it, did you? Boy, I sure did, but holy hell was I wrong. You know, listening back to that post I made years ago, I kind of wonder if I was in a manic state when I wrote it. 
You can hear it in the uh, lofty overtones in my writing. Yeah, I told myself a good story that I was the guy who beat depression. <laughs> no, nothing's ever quite that easy. That was my folly, though. It didn't have to be as hard as it was. But I mistook doing better for being well. So here we go. Story time, round two. I was dragging down because of a shit job which sent me into a drinking habit. Eventually I found one leg up by getting a better job, but it flung me to a different city and away from my girlfriend who I was living with at the time. We envisioned somehow making it work and using the stability towards reuniting, but the virus in my head would never, ever allow something like that to happen to me. I won't go into specifics, but I wounded her terribly, and things went down pretty fast. Still can't really talk about it, and this is the first time I've ever brought it up to anybody, really. The shame and self-hatred I feel over it are... It's still too raw. But... And this story would be disgenuine and bordering on an outline, outright lie if I didn't tell this part too. I'm not the guy who beat depression. I don't get to be that guy. For months, it was like being in a fugue state. I felt awful, and so I'd drink. And in that space, my inhibitions would drop. And then one day, the haze broke, and she saw me for what I was. And that snapped me to reality as it all ended. The past four months felt like a bad dream about someone horrible, except it was me. Except it wasn't a dream. It had happened. A few people I've talked to about this have tried to assure me that they didn't feel it was that horrible in the grand scheme of things, but the simple truth is that I deeply harmed someone that I loved. Someone who didn't deserve that at all. And while I heard their reassurances, the fact is that I behaved in a way that was wildly outside my moral standards as a human, and far outside the image I have of myself. It was, and still is, difficult to live with that notion that I've done. It is difficult to live with that notion that I hurt someone. Like, who the fuck does that? I couldn't live with it. And I started contemplating suicide again. Maybe jumping off a cell tower. It was damn cold in the winter, though. Maybe I'd slip off on the ice 40 feet up and just be really fucked up in the hospital and have trespassing charges on top of it. Or maybe I could walk way out there, somewhere, 
and just jump in a freezing lake. Somewhere far enough where I had no chance of making it back, just slowly go numb and fall asleep. Some part of me realized what was going on and that I needed to relieve the pressure somehow. What was really going on was that my sense of morality had become twisted. I hold myself to a high standard towards treating people well, and having broken that, my brain screamed that I needed punishment. Sometimes I'll, I'd lay on the floor while my whole mind chanted, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die, for what seemed like hours. And it may very well have been. I wouldn't know. I was too fucking hammered from the whiskey. So I saw the mechanism and chose a way to punish myself a little bit, just to shut up the voice of death. I began cutting and burning myself. Scraping, really. I didn't want to leave any permanent marks, because if someone saw it, they might try to get me help and ruin the whole thing. (laughs) That's when I realized I was in deep shit. This wasn't anywhere normal, or even near the twisted normal that was the entirety of my life up to this point. I didn't have the mojo or the motivation to navigate the world of insurance to help find a therapist or doctor from my sad nest on the floor of my apartment. So I reached out to BetterHelp, a text therapy service, and explained my situation. And looking back, uh, man, they, they responded that I really needed to see someone in person, desperately, immediately. And that's the honest case when you're a real threat to your own safety and you're already actively harming yourself. That was a huge wake-up call, like, holy shit, I'm in really deep. Calling doctors from the insurance company's website, I kept coming empty-handed. The list was outdated. They were either no longer accepting new patients or they no longer accepted my insurance. Lacking the ability to navigate the system myself in my degraded state, I went to a regular doctor and explained my situation. They got me in touch with a social worker who gave me the names of some good doctors nearby, and I went down to a therapist. After a couple sessions, we went over strategy after strategy. I already knew the strategies and that they were a good idea. She asked me why I couldn't do it. I don't know. I just don't have the motivation to actually try. I can't make myself do any of these things. To which she responded, Well, I'm not saying there's nothing we can do. But at this point, where you know so well what work needs to be done, but you can't actually do any of it, that's the classic sign that we're need of we're in need of medical intervention, not just therapy. And this session was the first time that I'd ever realized thoughts such as I hate myself or I wish I was dead were in any way abnormal. <laughs> you should have seen my face. Absolute consternation. I stared at my therapist like a cow staring at a new gate. What magic is this? It can't be real. Absolutely mind-blowing. After my first crisis, those thoughts never actually stopped. 
And so I mistook simply being out of crisis and being back to my usual, eh, normal, was success, but really my usual normal was pretty fucked up, so that was not a baseline that I should have left it at. And that uh, those thoughts should have been the waving red flag to tip me off. The only normal, so to speak, is being able to rest within yourself and who you are, to feel content. There is no normal type of human. I've never had that state longer than minutes or hours. The longest hours were when soloing circuits with a free mind. So I went to the doctor. Medication. Scary. I hadn't been able to go to work for three days beforehand, and in the lobby the depression monster in my head was screaming at me to run, and I was essentially twitching in my chair, fighting the urge to flee like an addict running into withdrawal symptoms. I was addicted to my pain. It was familiar, and familiarity is comfortable. We don't like getting rid of comfort. Even if that comfort is pain. We humans can grow accustomed to anything. I mean, how'd it feel the first time you drove a car? For most of us, it was fucking terrifying. And now? It's just Tuesday. That capacity to grow comfortable allows us to learn new skills, to grow as humans, to put men on the moon and become great. But it's a double-edged sword. It also gives us the ability to grow accustomed to abusive relationships. It gives us the ability to become accustomed to minds which abuse us as well. It's the source of both the greatness and the horror of humanity. But, it can go either way. It can always turn back. My doctor was appalled that no one had told me all those years ago that this would be a lifelong condition for me. Given that my youngest memories are tainted with self-hatred and a desire to die, and that now this condition lacks any clear reason, it's just there, I would probably never be rid of it. Some folks' depression has a clear and present reason, So clearing up that reason brings them out of the darkness, but mine comes from a fundamental belief that I am a piece of shit. Some folks would say that I'm soloing to fulfill a narcissistic mindset in search of praise, but really, you can't stoke my ego. It's physically impossible because five minutes after you try, I'll remember that time I fucked something up 20 years ago as a kid, and suddenly be overwhelmed by self-hatred, anxiety, and a desire to withdraw. The other day, someone asked a question on Instagram, and the wording sounded antagonistic. You know how it's notoriously hard to read people's tone on the internet? 
I responded harshly, and the guy responded real mellow and politely, and I realized that I'd just been a total fucking asshole to someone that was actually cool to me. I've been replaying the offense over and over and over in my head for days now. I just can't let it go. My brain keeps saying I hate myself as I try try to swerve the thought into, I hate feeling this way about myself, and it's hard to wrench that around. Sometimes I realize what's happening mid-thought, and I can swerve it like that, and the replay has slowed down now because of that, but it's not totally gone. It never is. The process is, first comes I hate myself. Then comes I hate feeling this way. And finally, I hate feeling this way. It's okay. You're working on it. You know what you fucked up. You can let it go. And then I try to repeat that last part instead of the uh, insidious thought my brain was giving me, and I wait for the pain to loosen its hook a bit as I repeat this statement, for the feeling to dissipate. It's like rehearsing for one of my free solos, but one that's forced on me instead of one that I'd ever choose. This move sucks, but I have no choice but to repeat it and practice it in my own way until it no longer feels heinous, and I can navigate through it without despair. Otherwise, it'll be the death of me. Except it's not just that one thought. It's death by a thousand paper cuts. I have to fight those urges every single day. There is a Zen practice, or notion, or Zen question. Is that a thing? I don't know much about Zen, but I know this came from it. Anyhow... How many times have you stepped through a doorway today? You have no idea, do you? You weren't even present when it happened. Imagine trying to note that, and how easy it would be to lose count and miss some. And that's what this is like, but with thoughts of self-hatred, I have to try and notice all of them, and remind myself that they aren't true. Each one of those thoughts is a radioactive element with its own half-life. It's never gone, but it decays over time to become something less toxic and less invasive. As I practice with these thoughts, each one intrudes less and less frequently until... Recently? In the past couple of months? On some days, I've actually felt content. You have no idea how weird that feels. Holy crap, that is a strange feeling. I mean, except for those of you who do know what that feels like, of course. A couple years ago in Asheville, on a climbing trip, I saw the most poignant bumper sticker in history. It said, Don't believe everything that you think. what they do. And some of those thoughts are, um, in technical terms, absolute bullshit. <laughs> Don't listen to them. 
They're coming from you, but they're not truly pertinent to you, no matter how sure your brain thinks they are. Like, I'd reckon most of you folks don't think that I'm a piece of shit, even though my brain is fucking screaming it. I mean, not at the moment, but it was at times in my life. Luckily, I'm doing pretty fucking good right now. I mean, sure, I was a little bit depressed prior to recording this, but it was the kind of thing that I could notice and work through. You know, like doing reps to strengthen your biceps, except for the brain box. Anyhow, the skills I've learned from soloing and in fighting these tendencies and noticing my psychological doorways, as the metaphor goes, have made me more resilient to the punches of life. That's why the survivors I've met are all such deep and wholesome people. As David Goggins says, A fine sword is not crafted at room temperature. It is forged through fire and flame and beaten with a hammer. And so it is with these experiences of despair. To live through them is to craft a self which really understands the breadth and depth of human capacity in ways that you couldn't have otherwise. Some deal with that more than others. The band Icon for Hire has a particularly salient lyric from their song Under the Knife, which says, I know other people had it worse, but that didn't make me better. Never feel shame for how small you think your trials are. There are no small trials. After at my life-saving doctor's visit a year ago, we found that my story is more complex than <clears throat> just depression. I have bipolar too. It's a condition comprised of extremely severe depression, alternating with low-intensity manic episodes, so imagine the classic stereotypical bipolar, and the swings are the same magnitude, but the center point is depressed instead of normal. So my baseline is depressed, and sometimes I'm extremely fucking depressed. And then other times I swing up and I'm just like slightly elevated. So, yeah, I would go into rapid cycling episodes lasting for months after I moved across the country to come up here. Depression would rapidly give way to that little bit of mania and then back again like a pendulum that just wouldn't stop. But at the time... I had no idea what mania was and that I should look out of it. Look out for it. Essentially, I'd get depressed out of my mind and then start engaging in some sort of behavior to lift myself up that was usually self-destructive. I was out of control and erratic and alcoholic. It's like having two shoulder angels, but they both suck. One says, man, this here looks like a bad idea. Let's do the shit out of it. And the other says, hey, this looks like a good idea. Let's definitely not do the shit out of it. This is how I wound up hurting someone so badly. I was blind to the consequences of my actions as my mind flipped from one extreme to the other, just trying to extricate itself from the fogging haze which had become my life. That's not an excuse for doing it, but... At least I understand why it happened now, so I can make sure it doesn't again. But you'd never know, because most of the time when you folks saw me, I was probably just a bit manic, 
which for me comes across as being ADD-ish with an extra helping of over-the-top in social situations. <laughs> yeah, explains a whole fucking lot when you hear it, doesn't it? It's like, oh, no shit, he's manic. They had to tell him that. Some of my good friends were like, wait, you didn't know? I could have told you that years ago and saved you the cost of therapy. <laughs> so, now, not only am I afraid when I feel sadness, but I'm also afraid when I feel stoked. Is this really just the benign experience of excitement? Or am I cycling into mania? Sometimes I'm an asshole. But I don't mean to be. I'm just a little bit blind from mania at the moment to what's socially acceptable and what's hurtful or just shitty. Hard to tell the difference between humor and being a turd sometimes. A little bit more so for me. Do me a favor and call me out if I step over the line. I have loads of signals that depression is out of control, like sleeping in too much, the return of that I hate myself thought, things like skipping showers and forgetting to brush my teeth. These are the, um, as they say, the canary in the coal mine. But mania? I know that sometimes I go off the rails in a social context, but I'm never aware of when. I'm going off the rails. If you're listening to that, again, feel free to call me out and let me know. I don't even care if you do it in front of people. It's something I need to hear about so I can weigh how my symptoms are tracking over time. Recently, I was an asshole to a friend, and recognizing it was part of what led me to a conversation with my doctor where we adjusted my medication to avoid letting my symptoms start swinging again. It's very useful feedback for me. The real difference between stoke and mania is whether you're having a positive effect on the world around you and yourself, or a negative one. Being diagnosed with bipolar gave me a lot of trepidation. It's still a slang term for crazy. And, well, I've got enough fucking people calling me crazy as it is. And I know what you're thinking. How does this affect his climbing? Guy's one of them crazy-ass free soloers, right? Well, this podcast is called The Process, and that's a part of the process. When it comes to climbing, I want to be Mr. Spock. It's all a logical process rather than an emotional one while I'm performing the pre-flight inspection. And the pre-flight preparations all happen when I'm in that zen flow state which I can only achieve on the rock. And all that is a gigantic shield from the cycles of my mind. It's where I feel total equanimity and peace. It's where I keep it on the level. Actually. Hmm. Instead of worrying about how life affects my climbing... Maybe I need to start making life decisions in the middle of a solo from now on just to make sure that I'm actually on the level. Just today on a podcast, I heard of a condition called Amplified Pain. Amplified pain musculoskeletal syndrome is a condition where the degree of pain is much more intense than would be expected in an individual for the stimulus provided. 
In some, it is so severe that a simple warm breeze will feel like being burned in a campfire. One of the very few strategies which work for this involves intense physical therapy for weeks, which, to be honest, sounds worse than the Navy SEAL's Hell Week. They ask the patients to go through as much pain as they can for six to nine hours per day. It's simple things like swimming, swimming laps in a pool that's warmed up to body temperature. It feels like that burning sensation the whole time. Things like jumping and touching post-it notes on the wall. Even the simplest physical stimuli cause them outrageous pain. Normally, when they feel the pain in life, the response is to turn away from it. So, in a way, they've patterned their pain to grow. When pain wells up to the task of walking, which is something non-threatening, and then they stop walking, they've told their pain that, yeah, you're right, this is threatening. Thus, confirming and entrenching the pattern. You can imagine how easy that would be to do. And so it grows and expands. Through this training and by leaning into the pain, they're sending the signal to their brains that no, this is not threatening, you are wrong. Rather than talk pain levels and such during the therapy, the coach asks them if it felt easy, medium, or hard. And they check in with how are you feeling now to keep them in tune with their emotional state and how it interacts with their sensation of pain so that they're thinking of all the conditions around the pain rather than focusing and marinating on the pain itself. Over time, their brains learn to let go of that pain so they can resume normal life activities and even get back to the one things that they loved even things as physical as dancing. Over the time, maybe that's the key. We have to let go of our pain, even though it's the most familiar force in the universe. David Goggins notes that hard things are where we grow. He made a deliberate choice in life to seek out hard things and do them, even when his mind screams not to. He's the only person who's been through Hell Week in all three branches of the armed forces. He's used hard things to temper his mind and strengthen his will to overcome. As we mentioned earlier, a sword is forged in fire and flames. In a way, difficulties are a gift. They're our forge. For the past two weeks, I've been hitting the snooze button every day for one to three hours in the morning. We adjusted my sleeping meds, believing that I was tired from poor sleep, which was true, but after my sleep normalized, I realized that I wasn't feeling tired in the morning anymore. I was just feeling incapable of raising the will to get moving. I was depressed again. So we adjust my mood stabilizers, and that helped. I could actually get up and walk to the alarm clock, only to hit snooze and faceplant in the bed again. Waking up feels fucking hard. So I've been kind and telling myself to just meet yourself where you are. You need to recharge, but it hasn't been working. It's been making it get worse. I've been reaffirming my mind's notion that getting started in the morning is hard. 
and so it's gotten progressively more difficult over time. So I scattered my work phone, my personal phone, my iPad, and alarm clock at four locations around my room. I'll make a circuit, snooze them all, and fall abed again. I'm going to make little signs on notebook paper that say do hard things and place one over each of my alarm items. It's like my dad always told me. Muscle soreness isn't really pain. It's the feeling of being stronger tomorrow. And ever since then, I've loved the sensation of muscle soreness and the difficulty of training. Pain can be therapeutic, and hard things are how we inoculate ourselves to even harder things in the future. The key lies not in the sensation of pain, but how you frame it. The girls in that podcast with amplified pain syndrome, as they went through physical therapy, they would at times be bodily shaking, crying from the pain, or even vomiting due to the agony their minds had created, and yet through it all, the emotions they felt about doing the difficult things were overall positive, because they knew it wasn't just pain, it was the feeling of being stronger tomorrow. So I'm going to lean into the discomfort and the difficulty. Maybe that'll help me repattern my mind. Just like I repatterned it after dying in Yosemite. From falling headfirst from 20 feet. To get my climbing life back. Maybe this is the key to get the rest of my life back and keeping it that way. So that's my new mantra. Do hard things. And I'm going to practice it every time the depression monster rears his ugly head. Or at least I'm going to try to. I don't know how many doorways I've walked through today. Hmm. But I need to practice. So that's it. Practice is hard. That's what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll only notice one out of every 200 negative thoughts or one out of every 200 opportunities to do something hard and push through. Maybe next week it'll be two out of 200 and then three. I've always had the notion of do hard things with regards to training my body, and this has been my anchor through years of struggle. But now maybe it's going to become more so. Now maybe it can be the foundation of building a healthy mind. I'll always have to remain vigilant, but maybe this is a powerful tool that I can use in the process. If it's worked for others, that means it can work for me too. So wish me luck, as I wish you luck as well. I'm off to a good start tonight. Getting this podcast begun actually felt like a hard thing, but here we are. Some 50 plus minutes later, we're about to wrap up recording. Peace, love, and cookies, y'all. Be safe out there. But if for some reason you can't be safe, do, do, do try to be careful. <clears throat> oh.
Okay, so uh, I actually wrapped up recording there, but I'm back in the studio and back on the mic because I had a few extra thoughts here. So, uh, what do we do with all this? Some folks would rather we didn't talk about it at all for fear of some copycat syndrome. Some say the same about free soloing and speed climbing. With any subject which is alarming, it immediately becomes polarized between vilification and idolization, it seems, and neither are healthy. To put it simply, copycat effect is a lie. Simply talking about things does not cause folks to repeat them. I was just a child when I first started thinking about suicide, and we have kids as young as eight years old on the news killing themselves. I wasn't young enough then to know what suicide even was, but I knew what dead was, and I reckon that was better than the suffering I felt. As always, the middle effect is best. As always, the middle way is best. What does it take to survive? With soloing and speed climbing, the dangerous pursuits, vilification and glorification, achieve the same goal through separate means, and that achieved goal is to promote and encourage. Glorification, for the obvious reasons, but vilification through spite achieves the same goal. You think this is horrible? You judge me for this? Well, fuck you. I'll show you all! Mm. But talking about the process and how to stay alive. That's what really makes people safe. Or at least as safe as we can be in this inherently dangerous thing called life. With some, it's just a matter of, I can't stand being here anymore. I want to go. As it was with me at a very young age, it can morph into a sort of spite for others. They want to think of me like that? Well, I'll show them. They're going to feel real bad once I'm gone, as it did for me in junior high. Ostracizing through fear of some sort of copycat effect isn't healthy. That's why they're suffering already, from being ostracized. Going over the top with extreme pity isn't healthy either. I know that I sure don't want to be known as Depression Boy and have that become the defining characteristic of my interactions going forward. Just a never-ending stream of, hey, are you okay? That too makes people feel ostracized and other. Again, it's about what it takes to stay alive. And often, that's just acceptance. Sometimes we're all feeling rough, and that advice, never-ending, can feel extremely frustrating. I've already been thinking long and hard about this. The pity gets old, and the repeated suggestions, too. Humans have different needs at different times. Seems like you feel like hell today. You want to talk about it, or would you rather have a distraction? Alright, well, would you rather bounce ideas off me for advice, or do you just need to vent and get it all out while I sit here and listen? Different needs at different times. While I mentioned a moment ago that I don't want to be Depression Boy and have that define my existence, 
I'm quite okay with anybody reaching out to me if you need that moment to acknowledge that you're not alone. I've got a wide and diverse life, so I'm not actually worried about any one facet defining me. I'm weird as fuck, and I embrace every last corner of it. I don't have answers. Nobody does. If we did, I wouldn't have had to write this. So I'm going to close this episode out with a track from Icon for Hire called Under the Knife and just hope that I don't receive a cease and desist letter. But the sort of things I've covered here are exactly why they wrote this track. A lot of their work has been helpful to me, to me as they've made me feel less other. Like, hey, other folks are dealing with this too, and there's nothing bad about being one of us. We're doing the best we can. Welcome to the club. Ariel starts off with the lyric, This is the song I'm too scared to write. As I was also scared to write this article to begin with, and then felt the same fear all over again when I knew that someday I'd have to adjust it for my new diagnosis. But some of you may need it. So here it is. You're not fucked up. You're just human and healing. As best you can. You're not alone. And neither am I. Hey everybody, I'm here in the uh, post-post-post-production. Oh, hey there bird, how you doing? Nope, she's going to hide in my shirt. Um, anyway, two things. One, y'all probably heard the audio chopping up there. When I was in the studio at my secret underlayer, underground lair, by which I mean the spare room in the office at work. Hey, sonny. I, uh, we got hit by a rainstorm, and I didn't appreciate how much noise it would throw in the system. Oopsie, my bad. Well, the, um, studio's back at home now, so we don't have to worry about that, because I'm on the bottom floor of the apartment, so all the noise happens upstairs. Yay! Um, oh yeah, and that alarm clock thing totally didn't work. Yeah, I know I sounded all triumphant about my alarm clock strategy, but I've got four different alarm clocks around here, and I still faceplant in the bed immediately thereafter. So... Still working on it? Anyhow, moving on to one of my favorite tracks ever of all time, Under the Knife, by Icon for Hire, on their album... You can't kill us. This is the song I'm too scared to write. But some of you may need it tonight. Oh, there you were, heart made of glass. Fragile little thing, shadow too fast. Try to pick the pieces, up, bop, bop. And that's the way you first got caught, caught, caught. A devil drew you in.
oversimplified from the other side It's easy to gloss over all the messy reasons why And it's easy to forget where you've been I guess that's what the scars are for, huh? When we were 15, we wouldn't dare let that shit be seen But now it seems mutilation's gone mainstream I see you at my shows, scarred up from head to toe Like there's no point even trying not to let it show Cause we all know emo kids like to hurt themselves Too many feelings and not enough self-control And I mean, does this mess with any of the rest of you? It's an epidemic and we're cool with it, don't question it But it bothers me, our scars are currency by which we're measured Like let the record show who let it slip and who held it together To the piano and make it sing for you I'll keep doing what I always do Drag my heart to the piano and let it sing for you Drag my heart to the piano and let it sing for you.